History. History. Through the eyes of those who lived it. This is Hometown Heroes. Presented on the air and online by Provident Payments. Proudly honoring the men and women whose service and sacrifice have secured our freedom. Now, the host of Hometown Heroes, Paul Leffler. Welcome to another edition of Hometown Heroes, the program that reminds you no matter where you live in this great country of ours, no matter how big or how small your hometown might be, there are stories there that should not go untold. We've learned that they don't have to go untold as long as we're willing to take the initiative to ask a few questions and then invest enough time to listen patiently as memories from long ago take on new meaning in the here and now. Our goal is to honor our veterans for their service and sacrifice to preserve their stories so we never forget the price that's been paid for our freedom. And along the way, not only are we educated, not only are we entertained, but often we find ourselves inspired by these stories from our greatest generation. Our guest today is a lifelong New Yorker you may have the privilege of meeting sometime in the Big Apple, especially if you visit the museum ship USS Intrepid, an aircraft carrier that survived five kamikaze attacks in World War II, later served as a NASA recovery vessel, and now is a sea, air, and space museum welcoming visitors from all over the world. 98-year-old World War II Navy veteran Arthur Grabiner will start us off with his early years. I had it. Uh, three sisters and a brother. Two sisters born in Poland. The other sister, my brother and I, we were born here in the United States. I was born in Lower Manhattan, and the family moved to Brooklyn, and my father bought a grocery business. Uh, we moved to the Bronx and that's where I grew up. And as I said, here was my home, my apartment. I went 20 blocks this way, 20 blocks that way, 20 blocks that way, 20 blocks that way. That was my world. Occasionally, my father would take me downtown, and uh, that was a pleasure to go to the theater there. But that's it. We were went to school there, everything was there. Now I was drafted into the Navy, and the first place on October 26th, I think it was, I was assigned to my ship, the USS Lawrence, APA 153. We had 24 landing craft, which we used to carry the troops from our ship to the invading area. As a boy growing up in New York in the 30s, I know, you know, the Polo Grounds and Ebbets Field and Yankee Stadium. Were you a baseball fan? Yes. In going to uh, high school, you joined the general organization and they took us to a football game, either the Giant game or the Yankee game. And they had that for four years. And the whole school went. And uh, that was really exciting, going to these games and seeing people from all over the city there. Did you have a, a sports hero or anything in those days? Well, everybody in my high school had one. It was Hank Greenberg. He was 15 years before me, but he lived in my neighborhood, went through the school. Whenever we go to the school, that was it. We had our hero. 
And like you, Hank Greenberg also served in World War II. Baseball fans might know that the Hall of Famer had his number five retired by the Detroit Tigers, that he was a two-time MVP, two-time World Series champion. He led the American League in homers four times, including three times before World War II and once after coming back from serving more time in the military than any other big leaguer during that period. 47 months in uniform, first in the Army, then the Army Air Corps. Hank's last duty overseas was scouting bombing targets for B-29s in the China-Burma-India theater. Hank Greenberg was the first big leaguer to sign up for military service after Pearl Harbor. And speaking of Pearl Harbor, I understand you have a very distinct memory of December 7th, 1941. I certainly do. I was at home. It was a Sunday. Country, what's the day right? It was a nice sunny day in New York City. I was in my bedroom. I had my radio, and I was listening to the football game, the New York Giants versus the Dodgers, and what, listening to the game, all of a sudden there was an announcement, all uh, military personnel, please report back to your base. I don't know what the heck's going on. I'm listening later. Later on, they said the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. If you asked me where Pearl Harbor was, I did not know it. If you showed me a map, I couldn't think. The next day... In our high school, we all reported to our homeroom, and the PA system was on, and we heard the President Roosevelt ask for a declaration of war against Germany, Italy, and the Japanese. And life from that moment on changed for me, for everybody in the country. Had ration stamps, growing up buying uh, war bonds, and everything. Women went to work, and it was the surcharge at night, the test, blackouts and everything. If you saw a Western Union messenger, those days, the Western Union messenger was on a bike. He had a khaki uniform. You saw him in your neighborhood. That was bad news because the War Department sent a telegram to the next of kin telling him your love son, daughter, whatever, was killed. And that was terrible to see that. And I'm curious, too, because being right here in New York City, you're close to some things that a lot of people don't think of when it comes to World War II. I mean, we think about the European theater and the Pacific, but the U-boat threat off the Atlantic coast, is that something you were aware of at the time? We were aware at that time, not that everybody had a radio, no televisions. What it was, there were sinking ships right off New York constantly, and they would go with a, de- a newspaper, extra, 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 and you buy a paper for three cents. That's how you got everything. You went to movies, there was movie tone news, which was came on and showed this occupation that we were doing. Things weren't going good for us at the beginning. They would sink on our ships, but we were building every ship, ship they sunk, we built two, replace them. And we were well aware of the war. 
in New York City. Now, there was rationing. My brother had a car. couldn't get gasoline. He had to sell his car. I want to ask also, because I know that, that you're one of the many Jewish American veterans who served in World War II. Were you aware, was your family aware, of what was happening to the Jewish people throughout Europe because of the Third Reich? Yes. Uh, well, later on, we were aware that they were confiscating all the goods of the Jewish people in Germany, Italy, and we were aware of it. My grandmother came from Poland, were fleeing the Nazis, and she passed away. In the Jewish religion, you sit for a week, what they call sitting shiva. Mm -hmm. You sit on a cardboard box, and my mother, some relative came and found out that my grandmother was killed, and my mother sat for a week. There are dietary restrictions in Jewish. The Arabs, the Palestinians have the same thing. You don't meet, meet with dairy. I get to up to uh, Samson, New York, 7 o'clock in the morning. My first meal in the Navy was a bologna sandwich on white bread. That's meat, and the bread is made with milk, with a glass of milk. Welcome to the U.S. Navy. <laughs> <laughs> Nothing kosher about it. No, no. But, uh, I bent all the rules of war. You know, before you ended up in the Navy, did you have some, some ideas of what you were going to do when you grew up, what your ambitions, hopes, well, and dreams were? I was hoping to go to uh, some college or something, and <laughs> it was all put stored away in my brain when I went to war. And why the Navy as opposed to one of the other branches? Well, Everybody in my neighborhood was going into the Army. A few in uh, the Marines. I wanted to be a little different. When I went to the draft board, they asked me if I had a preference. I said, U.S. Navy. They said, great, you got it. That was our allocation for the day. If I said the Army, I would get the Navy. <laughs> That's what happened. Everybody that day in station where we went for our physical got the Navy. Well, I was offered to go and I went to yeoman school to go to some marine duty, you know, small. I could fit on some marine a little more comfortable. I was a gung-ho, and then I thought about it. What would my parents think about it? And I aborted the idea. Well, and we know now that that was one of the most dangerous things you could do in the Navy in World War II, and 52 submarines didn't survive the war. So was there kind of a welcome to the Navy moment for you, something that gave you a taste of what this life was going to be like? Well, I found out that the Navy tells us what to eat, sleep, drink, dress, when to get up, when to go to sleep. Now, they put me in a barracks, about 50 of us, and an ultraviolet lamp was on 24-7. None of the other barracks had it. Here, they were testing to see how many of us went to sick bay, got sick. We couldn't do anything about it. Navy took a life over, and they told us what to do. And did you have a preference for what kind of ship you ended up on? No, no, I didn't know. I went to yeoman school for four months. Then they sent me to Virginia, 
and uh, back and forth, and they sent me to California to the Marine Base, and then finally jumping around there for about two weeks, they took about 30 of us, and they sent us to the ship I went on to fill the complement up. And what was your duty aboard ship? That time I was a yeoman striker. Then I became a yeoman third class, and then a second class yeoman. We did all the paperwork on the ship that the Navy required. But I must tell you, I stood four-hour watch every day of the week, generally 12 at night to four in the morning. If I was on a bridge listening to the officer tell me 40 knots, 20 knots, whatever it was, and I related down to the engine room. And when we had general quarters, I was talking near a gun, a 40 millimeter gun. Later on, we had the loading up our passengers, I'll call them. They went over the side on a rope ladder into the land. Well, I was there, I had a big pole with a flag and what it was, we're out a couple of miles from the beach. They go in a circle. I wave my flag, and they come, hook up, and then they go. Now, very good. They go in there, but there's one problem. They, many instances, they can't hit the beach. It's coral, rock, and everything. Well, they drop the ramp back further and one, and... All the Marines or the Army personnel at the time, they would go in heads over, hands over the head, were carrying the rifle, the water up to the belly button, the backpack with the ammunition that is kept dry. Now, they hit the beach. We had a beach party to greet them, and on our ship, let me go back, we had two surgeons and sick pay, a general practitioner, a dentist, and a chaplain. They sent us six wounded servicemen, and our crew took care of them. Eventually, we went to Saipan, and we dropped them off. But the Japanese load our troops in. It was quiet. Then they get in, and they're in tunnels, and they came out, and hellfire blew open. But here, the beach, fine. They get back here in the trees and everything. That's when they engaged the enemy. What was the, the first battle you were involved in? Lingayan Gulf in the Philippines. Mm-hmm. We were there for one day. We got rid of our troops. Now, en route to the Philippines, the head medical officer called me, and he wanted to speak to me. I go in, what's the situation? Of the 550 crew members, I'm the only one that had AB blood, which is a rare type of blood. And he suggested that I give a pint of blood, and they would keep it in reserve for me. I said, fine, my lady. said, let's go. That blood stood in the refrigerator, till the ship was decommissioned. (laughs) I was thankful, lucky I didn't have to use it. Navy life was good to me. I enjoyed it.
And we are enjoying this visit with 98-year-old Arthur Grabiner, a lifelong New Yorker who makes his home in North Flushing, Queens. You can find photos and video related to Mr. Grabiner and his story at hometownheroesradio.com or the Hometown Heroes Facebook page. Not only does he volunteer his time aboard the USS Intrepid Air, Sea, and Space Museum, he's also a frequent visitor to St. John's University athletic events and Veterans Day ceremonies there. He's been a guest of honor at the Army-Navy football game. He'll be honored at the New York Islanders game on Thursday, February 8th, and at a recent Big Apple event featuring one of the greatest athletes on the planet, Mr. Grabiner received perhaps the loudest ovation of the night. We'll explain when Hometown Heroes comes right back after this. Hey, do you ever have those moments where you realize you've been settling for less than the best for way too long? Sometimes we just accept the status quo without looking around for better ways to do things. And I got to tell you, when it comes to your money, I think I've found a better way with EECU. Just take a look at myeecu.org and I think you'll see why. EECU is not a bank. It's a not-for-profit credit union that's all about taking care of you, the member. That's one of the reasons EECU just keeps growing and growing. Over 350,000 members now in 12 different California counties and access to more than 30,000 co-op ATMs and free online and mobile banking. But what I love most is how EECU always goes above and beyond to serve the community. A decade ago, the leadership and generosity of EECU helped establish Central Valley Honor Flight. By the end of this year, more than 1,800 veterans will have seen their memorials in Washington, D.C. for free. And that's just one example of the community involvement that EECU takes oh so seriously. Pick up the phone and become a member today. 1-800-538-3328. That's 1-800-538-3328. Proudly presented by Provident Payments, this is Hometown Heroes. Celebrating everyday Americans who answer the call of duty. Welcome back to Hometown Heroes and our visit with 98-year-old Arthur Grabiner of Queens, New York. During World War II, he served aboard the attack transport USS Lawrence. These days, he devotes much of his time to keeping the history of World War II alive. Mr. Grabiner won't celebrate his 99th birthday until December, but perhaps the most well-known number 99 on the planet extended a special honor Mr. Grabiner's way. New York Yankees superstar Aaron Judge recently held his annual All Rise Foundation All-Star Gala in Manhattan. I had the privilege of again serving as one of the MCs for the event, and again a World War II veteran led us all in the Pledge of Allegiance. I'm going to let you listen to Arthur Grabiner doing exactly that. He received a standing ovation before he began, and you'll hear that too, but the cheering really intensified once he finished. Again, that was at the All Rise Foundation All-Star Gala in New York. 
Thanks again to Aaron Judge and his family for being intentional about honoring those who have served our country. A few months earlier, when Judge's number was retired at his alma mater, Fresno State, he went out of his way to shake the hand of 103-year-old B-29 pilot Roger Jensen, whose story you've also heard on Hometown Heroes. Arthur Grabiner is no stranger to those kinds of stages, and as I mentioned earlier, he's going to be recognized for his military service February 8th at the New York Islanders NHL contest against the Tampa Bay Lightning. You'll find an array of photos from Mr. Grabiner's adventures on the Hometown Heroes Facebook page. And let's get back to his World War II adventures aboard APA-153, the attack transport USS Lawrence. So you got there right about the time that the kamikaze phenomenon really started to to show itself. What did you know about that before you saw it with your own eyes? We heard about it. Now, when we went to the Philippines, our lead ship, which we were always uh, there, and we were like we were married. We did everything together. They were hit, and they lost a lot of personnel, and they were hit by a kamikaze. I didn't see it. They were up front, and my ship was in the back. My kamikaze, we were in the invasion of Okinawa. First, about a couple miles out from sea, we discharged our troops. Now, while there, the second morning, we go back and we go what they call the zigzag formation. There are two lines of ships. They zig and zag on a given time. Let me say, nobody, none of my ship was okay. The ship in front of me got out of order, and he was 400 yards off my port side, the left side. He opened up going straight. Little cloud there, five minutes to six in the morning, all of a sudden comes out and hits this ship. Some of the personnel were blown overboard, some were killed, some uh, had all kinds of uh, wounded. At that point, I was a lookout on a bridge, had binoculars, and next to me was the executive officer, Lieutenant Livingston. What happened? We're watching the ship go and get hit, and all of a sudden, he, he, he screams under the PA, says, make smoke, make smoke, make smoke. All of a sudden, billows of smoke, I couldn't see my hand. We were lucky the people, uh, radar men, kept us from colliding. It came that afternoon, we got orders, we will report on deck every ship in our task force. All of the crew would go on top deck, dressed in the white uniforms, and stand at ease. At a given, you went, stood at attention, Beluga start blowing taps on every ship simultaneously. This was the largest funeral I ever attended. They take the deceased. They put them in a weighted canvas bag, and they go to the side. They have the American flag over the canvas bag, and then they slide them into the ocean. They receive the American flag, and it's emotional, emotional. But we go back out to sea. I'm ashamed to tell you, the crap game started again. This is 
how we were attuned. These things did not bother us. And this was our way of life. Well, I'm just curious if either then or now you think about that scene, that burial at sea. And I'm sure everybody listening can imagine the sound of taps while you're taking in this somber moment. Is there part of you that looks at those canvas bags and says, I could have been in one of those? We thought of it, but we let, forgot about it. Mm-hmm. We were brave. It's not going to hit us. And we had an attitude, gunko. So we've talked about a couple of the invasions that you participated in in your APA. I'm just curious, how about the weather? Did you hit any of those typhoons or bad storms? The enemy was one thing. The weather was terrible. We were, you know, the Great Circle, United States to the Philippine Islands. You go up north and circle, that's the shortest way. Here we are going from United States, I don't know what port it was, and we're on our way. We hit Typhoon, and instead of being out here, we were up here in the uh, Aleutian Islands. It was terrible. Nobody was permitted to go on deck. You secured the portholes, all the other uh, hatches you closed. You had no control, your bobs and everything, and you're lucky you made it out of it out there. It's heart wrenching. They gave we hit the equator. They gave us salt pills. Pump my pop quit, and I got stomach upset and everything. The next day, I pulverized the salt pill, took it, never had a problem all my days in the Navy. Never had seasickness thereafter. Even in the typhoon? Typhoon, no more. And can you give us a taste for for how you experienced that typhoon aboard ship? I mean, were you strapped to something? Were you holding on? I sat by office and everybody was below deck. Let me say this. We had ships that went around. The destroyers would circle around. They picked up vibrations beneath our ship. And all of a sudden, I'm sitting in my office. Everything is secured on the ship. And here, bang, 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 five, they dropped five depth charges below us. Whether they hit anything or not, they never told us, and they don't know. They had sonar, which they get vibrations beneath in the ocean. We just could see in the future out there radar. So they thought there was a submarine that was going to attack? They gave us, uh, they said this was, it was usual that there was some vibrations. It could have been our submarines down there. I don't know. But you forgot about it, and uh, you moved on. Everybody's had the same thought. We never worried about it. We're going to make it. And you did. And, you know, you told us your memory about December 7th, the start of the war for America. What about the end of the war? Do you have a VJ Day memory? I was on a, working on a top deck, for, I don't know, from my office, some other area on the ship. And Scott through the radio man picked up some radio message that they dropped a big bomb. What it was, uh, we didn't know. They didn't tell us, okay. The next day they tell us, drop another big bomb, blah, blah. We were on maneuvers then. 
one of the outer islands in Hawaii. We got our orders to go back to Pearl Harbor, and we were there, and we picked up 1,500 army troops to go into Japan. Now, in the 1,500 were 500 special men. They were all Native Hawaiians. They were Japanese extraction. They spoke fluent Japanese, could write, read, and we were taking them to be our interpreters. So you went back to take those occupation troops? That's when we took them and 500 of them and another thousand of regular troops. Did you get to go ashore in Japan? Yes. Cigarettes were currency in the Pacific, and I understand the same thing in Europe. And we put a pack of cigarettes in the heel of a shoe, and we went to the second day in Yokosuka, Japan. They let us, gave us shore leave go. And I went there, and there was a Japanese individual dressed in there at the time, and I gave him one cigarette, and he posed with me. Two enemies. The power of a cigarette gave you this uh, souvenir. And I'll put this up at hometownheroesradio.com. That's a good-looking sailor there, by the way. Was that a little surreal to be walking around on Japan after everything you'd been through? Well, we were the boss there. We went in. The guy had a shoe shop. They went in. They took his inventory. We walked around there. And uh, we were the victors. And I'm sure you were thinking about, when do I get to go home, huh? Not then, not then. We uh, we ran around all over the Pacific, and then we had, took old troops home later on. When our term came, it was, uh, oh, almost a year later. Who's your favorite United States president and why? Truman. He was the... Uh, President authorized the dropping of the two atomic bombs that ended the war. Otherwise, I wouldn't be here. Arthur Grabiner is not the first World War II veteran to share that thought on Hometown Heroes, but you sure could hear the sincerity in his voice, couldn't you? It's time for our final break, but when we come back, his honor flight experience and also what it was like to visit Pearl Harbor with the Best Defense Foundation for the 80th anniversary of that day of infamy. Hometown Heroes will be right back after this. When times get tough and budgets get tight, a lot of businesses start slashing their marketing budgets, which all too often turns into a costly mistake. Instead, what if you could customize that investment to zero in on your target audience with surgical precision? And why am I saying what if? Because I already know you can with search strategy marketing. It's not about how much you spend, it's about the strategy behind it. And Search Strategy Marketing is ready to prove it to you with a free, no-obligation assessment of your current efforts. Learn how to outrank your competition with a free, customized action plan just for Hometown Heroes listeners. Just go to hometownheroesradio.com and click on that light bulb logo for Search Strategy Marketing. It doesn't matter what your business is, Search Strategy Marketing can lead you to the best way to connect with your customers. So look for that light bulb logo today at hometownheroesradio.com and plug into the power that can take your business to the next level. 
When prices start going up, we all look for ways to save. So here's a simple message for you. Look no further than EECU. Did you know you can finance your mortgage through EECU? How about a home equity line of credit? EECU makes HELOC loans easy. And when the car business is all over the map, the auto loan rates are as steady as can be. EECU is a not-for-profit credit union, not a bank. So the members always win. Go to myeecu.org to become a member today or call one 800 53 Honoring veterans from sea to shining sea, you're listening to Hometown Heroes with Paul Leffler, brought to you by this local station and its sponsors, and presented everywhere, on the air and online, by Provident Payments, one of the fastest growing payment consultants in America. Connect today at ProvidentPayments.com. Welcome back to Hometown Heroes and our visit with 98-year-old Arthur Grabiner of New York City, a Navy veteran of World War II. Earlier, he shared that while growing up in the Big Apple before the war, a 20-block radius around his home constituted the entire world as he knew it. But I understand when you got to Dutch New Guinea aboard the USS Lawrence, you experienced a little bit of an epiphany or a revelation? Revelation. Here I was standing on the beach, and I was saying, my 20, oops, 20 year round, and here I could see to be a ride 10 miles out with binoculars a little further. And in 10 days, my life expanded. We got mail, and everything was censored. I knew there was one of them I'm going to joke around. I wrote, everything's fine. Couldn't We couldn't tell them where we were, what we did. And I said a little one paragraph. He has a copy of my letter that I uh, sent home. And that's it. Four months later, I told him, you remember this and this? We were there. <laughs> and said, but no, no fooling around. We used to joke around with the armies. There were mail boys, would we say, out in the ocean. And we, they'd drop off the mail and we'd pick it up. And it was a big joke, you know, to pull their leg. And is there anything I didn't ask you about, about life aboard ship that maybe stands out in your memory, things you experienced or the way things were? Life aboard ship is great. You sit in long tables, and uh, you uh, went for uh, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. One day I go out, I'm on top deck, and I'm going to get something, and I bang into somebody. We look, turn around, and he look with each other. He's in the army. He lived across the street from me. I gave him the royal treatment. I had him come into my office, sit around. I said, three meals, you come with me, you eat with the crew. Now then we had a stand at the table. We couldn't sit, so they got more in. And that was for a week, week and a half that I was host. The movie, I took him upstairs with the crew and got home. His, his mother was a widow, and she moved, and he moved, and never saw or heard about him again. He wrote home and told my parents, and she was so grateful she went and bought something from her father. So, you know, you mentioned that 
letter, and here I see it right here, 23 March 1945. Dear folks, time sure flies. On the 26th of this month, it'll be five months since we left the States. These five months sure have passed very fast. I'm getting along fine and hope that everything at home is getting along likewise. Nothing new has occurred lately that is of any importance. In this letter, I'm enclosing a bill from Dutch New Guinea. I got it at Wakdi Island in Dutch New Guinea. We were there about two months ago. You can add this to the collection of the Japanese money used in the Philippine Islands, which I sent you a while back. Don't let Papa retire on that Japanese money. He won't get too far. I guess this will be all for the present. Give my regards to all at home. And the interesting thing I note, and I emphasized them when I said it, all the locations you had in capital type, was that trying to emphasize a hint to them about something? No, no, that's uh, the normal thing. Uh, yeah. A name of a particular area and everything, a little emphasis. But I didn't tell him anything about the two invasions, the Japanese planes, kamikaze. No. Later on, we were permitted. They would have erased it or, or ripped up my mail. So why should I fall around? I knew the rules. They would have taken a razor blade and cut those words out, huh? Took a black marker and went right through it. You couldn't see it. Well, something else now right in front of you at this moment are are two Japanese flags that are, I guess, about six inches by five inches, something like that. What's the story there? Where did those come from? The war was over, and we were island hopping, moving troops from one place to the next, and we hit one island that the Japanese occupied, and there was their warehouse with all things, and what did we do? We went in, we raided the place. We took blankets and we took shoes and everything, and we took these flags and everything. Now, I want about these flags. The war is over. In order to get all of the guns out of the area, they gave us, each and every one of us, a rifle with a bayonet as a souvenir. And I spent, oh, weeks with sandpaper on that thing to get it nice and smooth and everything. And we got a letter permitting us to take this. This is how we get rid of Japanese rifles. Well, I had it at home for about a couple of years, and I'm not a gun enthusiast. And I went and I got rid of it. Today it would have been a big trophy. Yeah. So the gun's gone, but the paperwork remains more evidence of, of what you did. What about coming home, back to the States? How did that unfold? Well, finally, we in uh, May, we decommissioned our ship. We took it in Norfolk, Virginia. We went through the Panama Canal. And uh, there's a side story I'll tell you there. We were sent over to uh, Norfolk, Virginia, then I was sent to the Brooklyn Navy Yard and then Nassau County where I was discharged. They gave me a pass to go on the Long Island Railroad and a nickel to go on a subway from down in Midtown home. That was that. So 
it was uh, an excursion. And you mentioned a side story about your time around the Panama Canal? We're on the Pacific side of the Panama Canal. And I was in the Sea Division, Communications Division. A radio man and myself, we were sent to be shore patrol. We got a badge, shore patrol, we got a baton, etc. We were to protect our soldiers from causing problems or getting into problems. They put us on this one particular block. It was the red light district. <laughs> he and I had uh, a day there. Accident, we cut off all the traffic and, thing, and everything. Comes in the uh, evening, they're going to give us a break. And they sent us to a local hotel. I sit and relax. Yes, it was a hua house. <laughs> and walked some of our offices <laughs> from the ship, and they, they ended up a day, all full day, in red light districts. An eye-opening experience. Yes, yes. And the chaplain, chaplain is a nice guy. He, teach, he preached every religion under the sun. And when we took these six wounded men, he was very prominent with them. Second day, they gave me surely on the American side of the Panama Canal. I'm walking with a couple of sailors from my ship, and lo and behold, we see the chaplain. And we go over to him, hi, hi, hi. And there he is. He's drinking beer with a straw. So what was it like to, to get back to New York and to see your family again? It was great. It was great. And then to get into certain schools, you had to wait. So this was, uh, I was discharged in uh, May 1946. I went to Pace Institute in February of 47. Later on, it became Pace College, and now it's university, etc. And I went there. And I did four years in 39 months. I was like all the other sailors. We were all there. Our first classrooms were in the transportation building down in the uh, low part of Manhattan. Now, one rule, they wanted us, we, uh, it's an office building. We were on two or three floors and expanded. We had to wear a tie, so we all, the men, we all had a bow tie. We got to the, off the subway, on went to the bow tie. When the classes were through, we're out of the building, off came the bow tie. And I learned a lot in school, and I became a CPA, was with the firm that was with 50 years. And we sold our practice. I was a lead partner. <laughs> and uh, that was it. How long have you been volunteering on the USS Intrepid, the museum ship, World War II aircraft carrier here in New York? The war ended. Finally went to school. I finally got married. I had two children. I had an older son, Peter. This is Douglas. 
and I didn't think much about it. There were war story films from things occasionally I would watch it. I didn't think much about it. Now the war is over, I'm discharged after 50 years and everything. And I started telling a couple of stories about the war. And one story led to another story. I didn't think of it many, many years later. Then we started to go to high schools. And one student got up and said he never knew there was a war we were in Japan. All he knew was about the war in Europe. That's how they taught them. So my job, I find it exhilarating to tell some of these stories and some of these things and life that goes on in the military and what went on. And uh, we were a piece of baggage. Though time we were in the service, we were told everything to do. Now, you get your duty for a week. What are you doing here? Every sailor drinks beer and for breakfast. <laughs> that was life. That was life. But it's funny how I told you this individual I met on my ship. Before that, I was in California, and we went in, whatever to go into a tavern. And there was a girl, waitress, <laughs> who I went to school with. This is in California. Well, she became a very famous singer. But I knew her from school. But it's a small world. So you mentioned going to speak at schools, and, and people from all over the world have met you on the aircraft carrier, the Intrepid there. Why do you do that? Why is that so important to you? Well, one, it's exhilarating. And number two, while I'm alive, we'll try to pass on the gospel truth. They write different things. They leave everything out. This is my hands-on experience. Went to fifth grade school to teach some students. I'm talking about an honor flight, and I said, we went to an honor flight and came back, and they were greeting us and everything. And all of a sudden, he said, hey, I was on that group that greeted you. And the other side said, I was there too with my baseball team. Small world. They greeted us at the airport. Well, and I was going to ask you about some of these adventures you've had in recent years, because I believe the tag you're wearing around your neck is from when you got to go to Pearl Harbor for the 80th anniversary with the Best Defense Foundation and our friend Donnie Edwards. And you told us about December 7th, 1941 and how you heard. What was it like to be there on that occasion 80 years later? It brought back memories. Hundreds and hundreds of former service people there. Now, down comes in Pearl Harbor a ship and on top deck is a crew dressed in whites. It brought back that memory of that funeral. We met the Secretary of the Navy with his wife, and we kept bunking into him in a number of places, and one place, Cooperstown, and he calls me out, and the whole place erupts thanking me. It was really something. All famous baseball players sitting in front of me and the back of me and everything. And here I am, a little me, and I'm the top dog. 
I think I saw a picture of you and Johnny Bench and Joe Torrey. Yes, yes. And the uh, plane we were coming from California. The stewardess came over to me. Would you permit Roger Starback take a photo with you? We made an arrangement at this very airport where we would meet. And he had his wife and children, and he took pictures with him, me, and the family. You must be doing something right. All these things keep lining up for you. And you mentioned the honor flight. So we've heard from a lot of veterans on this program who've been on the honor flight from all over the country. What was the experience like for you, and and what were the elements of it that really stood out? When I went to Washington, and they had displays the Pacific Theater War, European War. My interest was in the Pacific Theater, and one of my grandchildren was going to college in Washington, and we had to meet us there in the airport. Now, I took him and I pointed out, we were here, we were here, we were there, this is where we dropped bombs, etc., and everything. It brought back memories. And I'm just curious, I'm always interested in this, when a World War II veteran goes there to the World War II Memorial, which was such a long time coming, which took $197 million of World War II veterans' money to build. You mentioned the European and Pacific, and there's the fountain, but behind that fountain, there's that wall of gold stars representing over 400,000 Americans, guys like you, who didn't get to come home. When you were looking at those stars, is, is there a thought or idea that went through your mind? During the war, there were 16 million Americans who were in the military. As you mentioned, 400,000 were killed. 600,000 were wounded. You see these with artificial legs, etc. It brings back some bad memories of the war. You told us some of the things you went through. Ships getting hit right next to you, kamikazes in the air. Did you ever feel like someone was protecting you? No, I thought we all on my ship, we all were of the same mind. We were fearless and nothing's going to happen to us. A couple more questions for you, and if there's anything I didn't ask you about, feel free to add. I don't want to forget to say thank you. Thank you for serving our country and and for telling us this story nobody else could tell us. When you think back of 98 years on this planet, is there something that you would say you're most proud of or most thankful for? The little mark that I made in this world and bringing up my children to respect the flag. What do you think of when you look at the flag? It brings back memories when I was in the service and constantly saluting. I don't think of the bad things. And is there anything you haven't done in 98 years that you're still hoping to do, that you're looking forward to or thinking about? Uh, I imagine (laughs) there are plenty of things that to keep me going. Yes, yes. The latest is the Intrepid. We've set up all with all kinds of pictures and things from my ship or from the archives, and they come over and I explained to them burial at sea, bombing the kamikaze planes, etc. The funny thing is, on the Intrepid, there were more foreigners that stopped off and spoke with me and Douglas than Americans. Amazing. The Americans just passed 
Why? So if you ever catch Mr. Grabiner aboard the USS Intrepid, you know what to do and you know what not to do. If you visit hometownheroesradio.com or the Hometown Heroes Facebook page, you can find a short video of him talking to visitors on that historic aircraft carrier. And wherever Arthur goes, his son Doug is by his side. Most children never meet their hero. I'm extraordinarily blessed to have been raised, inspired, and unconditionally loved by my hero, World War II United States Navy veteran Arthur Grabiner. Every day is Veterans Day. Every day is Father's Day. I think that perspective is the perfect way to wrap up the show today, don't you? Thanks to Arthur and Doug Grabiner and also to American Airlines for providing us a nice quiet room at New York's LaGuardia Airport for us to record this interview. And thank you for listening today. I'm Paul Leffler reminding you again that freedom is not free. To let Paul know about a veteran in your life, visit hometownheroesradio.com and click on Suggest a Veteran. Today's program has been brought to you by Provident Payments. Give your business the edge only their personalized service can deliver at ProvidentPayments.com.